right, welcome to episode number 75 of the Just End the Suffering podcast. This is usually the podcast where we talk about New York sports and how they annoy me, but today we're doing something a little different. I saw a great new show on HBO last night, Watchmen. I had a lot of fun with it, so I happened to reach out to the man, the myth, the legend, John Stanko, for his thoughts. And John is so excited. He can't, he's ran over to the booth to do, do some uh, Watchmen talk to you. John, welcome. How are you? Mike, thank you for having me. Man, the myth, the legend. That's high yeah. praise. I appreciate that. And I'm sorry about your New York sports. Yeah, it's not going very well. Well, listen, as a Patriot fan, I'm saying we're recording this on Monday, October 21st. And as a Patriot fan, I can tell you objectively, I am worried about this Monday night football game. I did take the Jets with the points on the podcast this week. I, so. If I were a betting man, I would agree. Yeah. It's going to be a close game. It will be a close game, but that's when we're recording. We watched the episode last night. Lots of good stuff. The show Watchmen on HBO, based on the graphic novel from the 80s. Not so much the movie from 2009. And being run by Damon Lindelof, who is known for Lost and The Leftovers. So this book, this show is heavily based on the actual graphic novel. And, John, you have it with you. So give us a little refresher. I do have it. If we had visuals, I can. Yes. If you'd show me holding it up. Um, so this the show, HBO, David Lindelof show, is based solely off the graphic novel and the original graphic novel, not the prequels or the sequels that DC has put out. Um, so based strictly off the original 1980s graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Um, obviously, if you've read the graphic novel, you kind of know it goes it goes around some vigilante masked heroes, uh, none of which you have superhero powers, which is one of the biggest differences between the graphic novel and the movie. In the movie, Zack Snyder basically gave all these heroes some superpowers or super strength or whatever, but in the graphic novel, there are much more human. But it goes through the, the political and the struggles of, of society kind of falling apart in the 80s under Richard Nixon, um, and then eventually it is revealed, spoilers alert, that Ozymandias in the graphic novel is, who was supposedly a masked hero, uh, has turned the tide, sacrificing, being a martyr of his own vision of people seeing him as a true hero. He martyrs that, and he basically pins everything on Dr. Manhattan, who is the one person in the graphic novel with true superpowers, pins a giant cataclysmic event that happens in New York City in which uh, Ozymandias opens up a portal that brings in a giant squid that is seen as an alien to the New York City public and eventually kills 3 million people, pinning the blame on Dr. Manhattan. And so, therefore, the political anxiety of the Cold War between America and USSR, they come together unified over the fear of what Dr. Manhattan can do to humankind if he were to turn against them, and exiling Dr. Manhattan to the universe as Dr. Manhattan doesn't want to deal with the pressure of everything that Ozymandias put on him. So this show takes place 30 years after that following strictly what the graphic novel has put forward. Yes, strictly what the graphic novel has put forward, not the movie. The movie is not even referenced in this, so so you do not need to watch the movie. You don't even need to read the graphic novel. You could just hop right in right now and and enjoy the show. That's something, Lyndall Hoff has said this in many interviews, like, if you read the graphic novel, you'll get more understanding from the show, but you don't need to have read it to to appreciate the show. And I think watching the first episode, you definitely get a sense that there's a lot of exposition that he throws at you in this first episode, which which we love. But it definitely, even if you didn't read the graphic novel, you can enjoy the show. All right, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into this show. So I'm going to throw the spoiler warning up there for those of you who have not seen the pilot of Watchmen yet. New spoiler warning. More fitting considering this is the Watchmen show. So. <laughs> you should have played a ticking clock. Yeah, could have played a ticking clock and not choose to do that. But if you have not watched the pilot of Watchmen, get out, go watch the show, come back. Otherwise, if you don't care about being spoiled, stick around. We're going to break it all down. So you're, let's start with the beginning here. What was your first overall impression of the pilot? I thought overall the pilot episode was fantastic. It was incredibly well-paced. 
Um, for instance, the biggest thing was they got to that battle on the cattle ranch between the 7th Cavalry and the policemen going to ambush the terrorists. And that was only basically halfway through the episode. And I thought that was going to be the climactic moment. Yeah. But Lindelof paced this episode off so well with the script that he wrote. And there's so much that happens in the last 20 minutes, which I think is going to have the most long-ranging effects on this nine-episode series that he's doing, uh, that it really just captivated me. I thought it looked fantastic. The musical score was incredible. Just It was absolutely dynamite. I, w- I had it on second screen today during work, uh, watching it for a second time, and I'm just listening to the score, and I know exactly what moments the, the score is cueing to in the episode. So overall, I loved it. Uh, I enjoyed it on my second viewing as well. Really, fin- most things that stand out was the pacing was incredible and the score was outstanding. Yeah, it was a great uh, ride from start to finish because some of these shows, when they're too long, you know, they drag and drag. This one never did. You just kept moving. You're like, oh, stuff's happening. Something's happening. It's always great, and like... I mean, right from the jump, you get thrown into that 1921 Tulsa rise. It's not something you were expecting when you first signed on for this show. No, but I think that it. I think that what that going to 1921 did is Lindelhoff and everyone who wrote this show. I think he, in an interview he said he had 12 writers per episode, basically compiling all the different scripts that went into these different episodes. So, and what they did with going 1921 is they immediately put the political strife of um, racial tension in your in the forefront of your mind. And I think if you watch this pilot episode, Mike, you know that racial tension and white supremacy is going to be an immediate theme throughout the entire first season. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's stuff that hits close to home right now, just in our modern world. Absolutely. With, with the racial tension, with the uh, cops ish- like issues there. like There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on right now. You feel it hits very close to home if you're li- living in this society. Yeah, and I think I, that's... It's prevalent throughout modern times, 30 years after this original graphic novel was produced. In the graphic novel, most of the the, the satire that the writer Alan Moore and, and illustrator Dave Gibbons go toward is toward more of the political sense of the USSR and the Cold War and stuff like that. But now in this 30 years prior, Lindelhoff is really going for more of a social aspect and tackling those talking points on this TV show. Yeah, so it's we go forward from there. We have this whole sequence. There's the little kid, the little boy who is whose parents put him in a, a wagon to to get ship him out of the way from the riots. So they're presumably killed. He wakes up in a field, takes a baby away. He has a note. So remember this. Put pin this. We'll go back to this later. And we don't know who that baby is. No, we do not. We also, don't know who the baby is. We find out later on who the uh, kid is. But who the, fitty, who yeah. the kid is. Also, just of note. Incredibly powerful but subtle thing in that opening sequence is when the bullets are going through the crate that which this young child is in, the child isn't even flinching. Yep. He literally is just looking out the bullet hole. So you know he's just he's born into this violence. The gunshots don't scare him, yeah. which really sets the tone for what black people must have been like in Tulsa in the nineteen twenties. Yeah, absolutely does. And that's like and that's something that actually happened, folks. You can go on Wikipedia, look up Tulsa Rise, nineteen twenty one. They're not making this up. This mm-hmm. is a real thing they are dra- dramatizing for you. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go forward in the episode a little bit. Let's hop ahead to the first sequence when we encounter the 7th Cavalry where we have a guy driving his pickup truck. He gets pulled over by a cop wearing a yellow mask. And basically, it's a couple of points here because he pulls him over. He asks for the license registration. He goes for the glove compartment and gets and he's, You see a mask in his glove compartment. Can you explain what that mask looks like? So the Rorschach mask uh, that you first see in the glove compartment with this terrorist is a direct reference to the Rorschach character from the graphic novel, who is really the narrator of the graphic novel. Um, And at the end of the graphic novel, everything that happened in the 1980s uh, around the Watchmen is put in this diary Rorschach created, and he drops it off to a right-wing-based newspaper 
And based off what's happening in this show, it's very obvious that those things that happened in the 1980s got published for mass consumption. And now this Rorschach character is kind of like a godlike figure to the people in the 7th Cavalry and people of the right wing, it would presume, based off the, the temperature of the show. And they kind of see what he did in shining a light on the, the hidden things of the world about these masked heroes. Um, it's put to the forefront, this terrorist group, and now Rorschach is kind of their godlike figure that they emulate their mission based off of. Indeed, and the cop goes back to his car, pulls the mask down, and he's radioing in to get them to release his weapon from the console because unlike in modern times, the cops are not carrying the weapon out, and they are sort of pressurized. He has to call into headquarters and get this guy called Panda. Panda was divisive from what I saw on Twitter. A lot of yeah. people... Uh, a lot of people didn't like didn't like the character, but I think he's going to play a big part as the season goes forward. Yeah, we'll get to we'll get back to Panda, but he <laughs> Panda's very by the books. Like, are you sure this is a threat? Like, do you really like? Does he have this? Does he have that? By the time he gets clipped, by the time he gets the gun freed, the guy has pulled out, has the gun. The guy's pulled out wearing the Rorschach mask, shoots him like basically like point blank several times, and he throws a head of cabbage into the car, at a license in the car because he told him he was carrying lead. So I guess it was in the trunk. Yeah, the, I think that's as evil as it is. That's a little bit of humor that yeah. Lindelof just throws in to kind of yeah. take away from the "Oh my God, the cop is dead." I love that little little, yeah. little little tidbit. Yeah. So then we get this whole sequence. We kind of shift forward a little bit in the episode. We go to this sequence where the main character of the show, I would say, you say Regina King's character is the main character, correct? Yes, I would say yeah. that the, as the show goes on, uh, Angela Abar is her, is her character name. Definitely yeah. going to revolve around her. Yeah. So Angela Abar, that's Abar. A- Abar. She's at she's at a school. She's like teaching kids how to make moon pies and she says that she learned how to do it in Vietnam which is the 51st state from mm-hmm. the original Watchmen canon after because the reason Nixon was still president they won the Vietnam War much with the help of Dr. Manhattan and the comedian from the graphic yeah. novel and when they won they created they made it a state and Nixon state president we'll get that's kind of semi-relevant a little bit later but we'll discuss that and mm-hmm. so they, she's talking about how oh like I made these moon pies and and then, like, she says, I'm opening a bakery. I used to be a cop, but I'm not anymore because I got shot, and I don't want to be shot anymore. And then we see later on, she goes to her bakery. We see, we see a guy outside in a wheelchair who asks her, do you think I can lift 200 pounds? And she says. Well, she says, uh, yeah. sure, buddy. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll believe it when I see it sort of thing. Yeah, put a pin on that guy in the wheelchair. Yep. So we go, we go inside. She goes to the bakery. You realize there's not actually anything really happening in the bakery. It turns out she's a secret cop as well. Yeah, she's a secret cop, and this whole sequence, this is crazy, but she dresses up like a black nun, like an avenging nun. This reminded me really weirdly of Blade. I don't know why, Mike. I have no idea, but you see her put on all the dark. She's basically, she's a dark figure, and you see her immediately driving out into the light and going into the trailer park where she's going to capture a 7th Cavalry member for the police force. And the way she steps out of the car, her cape is literally flowing behind her. Yeah. It reminded me of Blade, and I don't know why. I don't get it. But it was just a very, very interesting costume, but a very, very cool sequence. Yeah, it was definitely a cool sequence. See her in action. Later on, she ends up going to the police precinct where we ha- see the cop meeting with the main cop played by Don Johnson. And like they have this whole discussion. You see all the cops are wearing masks because now the cops have been allowed to wear masks to protect themselves because apparently being – there's a danger against policing in this society. Yes, I believe it's called, I think it was called the White Knight was when uh, Abar um, was, was shot. shot. Yes. So I believe it stems from that, which happened, uh, which forced her to retire, quote unquote. 
Um, so that's when the police officers felt they, they needed to wear masks to protect themselves. Because that was when the 7th Cavalry, when they were first very prominent, this was their culminating moment. Yeah. And now the biggest thing with this, with this premiere is that the 7th Cavalry is back, which is what this police meeting is all about. Yeah, and they have released a video saying they're going to have launch like, some other big attack. And then we had this whole meeting about, oh, we need our weapons for 24 hours without any restrictions and no warrants needed. And then this is where we really get into Panda because – Panda's sitting there with a giant, literally a giant panda head over his face. Notice he's the only one with an animal head, yes. too. Everyone else kind of has just a straight mask or something like that. He's yeah. the only one with, the, with like, a character mask. Yeah, he's the only one with a character mask. And he's sitting there flipping through a rule book, and he's like, are we sure about this? Are we sure about this? And then, like, they're all like, do you feel your lives are in imminent danger? And then, like, he's going stickler. He's such a stickler for the rules. And, like, you could tell the other cops all cannot stand Panda. Well, no, because I think the, the cops, they don't like to work through the proverbial red tape when they yeah. want to get something done. Yeah. And I think that what what Lindelhoff did and what the writers did by having the first cop get shot with Panda going through all the acts is kind of perpetuating that point that the cops feel is that when they don't have access to all the things they need and they have to go through certain steps, they're put in more danger and they don't have time to react properly. Yeah. So I think that's really honing in on that point. And Panda is literally just a giant animal for the people to attack who feel that way. Yeah, and Panda, very he's very deadpan throughout the whole thing. He's not very, like, he's no emotion in any of his voice at all. He's very serious throughout his entire read of the rule book, and then they eventually all, all vote, yes, we need the guns, and then they, they get the guns, and then on we go. And he says he says to, to the sheriff, Judd, that this is a mistake, and Judd says, it's my funeral, which may be a little bit of foreshadowing that we'll get to. Yeah, it's another one to put the pin in. Mm-hmm, exactly. So let's go, let's go forward. Obviously, we have... The sequ- Before we get to the whole raid of the 7th Cavalry, one fun thing I want to note is when uh, Angela Abar is driving her daughter home from school, the fun sequence with the squid rain. <laughs> yeah, with the squid rain. This is what immediately, if you've read the graphic novel, I think you were happy with this scene because you're like, yes, they are just diving into the graphic novel. It's everything based off that. No funny business. Uh, if you're watching the show and you have no knowledge of the graphic novel, you're probably like, what is happening? Why are there giant squids raining down from the sky? Um, but I love this sequence. Uh, it immediately set the tone where Lindelhoff is going to take some chances. This was a chance in the premiere episode to put a sequence like this in there, but I loved it. Yeah, I remember. I definitely, at first, as well as people who's definitely going like this. What the hell's going on out here? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then it's so ca- cool. Just cal- I see how calmly she gets out of the car, takes the squeegee out, slowly squeegeeing the squid off her windshield. <laughs> well, yeah, it, and I think it's really cool because if you looked at what the squids looked like on the windshield, you could say that it looked like a Rorschach test where yeah. they're shifting shapes yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And you saw her daughter kind of poking at it and following the shapes. This may be a little bit of an homage to the Rorschach mask from the graphic novel, which changes as Rorschach's emotions change. So, so maybe a little bit of a nod there from the director. A little bit of a nod there for sure. And before we, another thing I want to get to before we get to the big uh, battle sequence with the Seventh uh, Cavalry is the sequence in the pod. Yes, where Angela brings her captive to the, the police station. They put them in this interrogation pod. Where who, who is the you remember who the character is who does the interrogation? The Looking Glass, played by Tim yeah. Blake Nelson. Yeah, so Tim Blake Nelson's character, Looking Glass, does this interrogation. His mask is literally like a thin mask that you can see reflections on of the other side. So it's creating a full illusion for whoever's in the tank with him. Also, it's incredible because he's known as a fantastic interrogator, and literally the only person that the person he's interrogating sees is themselves. So the the terrorist he's interrogating is staring at his own face, and the Looking Glass is literally just reading everything that he says. So a great 
just use of what a mask can be to describe a character subtly, not telling you outright, but just making the audience in the back of their head know this person has a way inside you. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things I love about the sequence is sort of all the subliminal images that were popping up. There were so many different things. So many. And like, I know it's offhand. I saw, like, the Obamas. I saw the, the, the Twin Towers in the World Trade Center. Exactly. So we don't know if this universe, if they're still standing or not. I believe in this universe they are still standing because in the graphic novel, everything is completely fictionalized. Yeah. And that's why it's a little bit shocking, just going back to the beginning really quick, that he— Lindelhoff put the 1921 Tulsa Tulsa riot, uh, riot races in there because that's a true American event. Yeah. So that's a true American event, and then he's blending it with the the fake 1980s from Alan Moore, what he created in the graphic novel, and now. So he's blending true American life with fiction, and now in the future for this Watchmen series. So very unique uh, formula that he's working with. So what was your impression of the whole pod sequence? Like, what did you think about when you saw the pod design? When I saw the pod design. Um, it's very interesting because it reminded me a little bit of Game of Thrones because there's so many things flashing at you really fast. It reminded me of when Bran first touched the tree um, and kind of saw immediately what the future was going to hold. And every single Game of Thrones fan was like, what are all these still shots? What is all this predicting? Blah, 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 blah. So it reminded me a little bit of that. I haven't gone through and watched all the YouTube deep dives of everything that happened in the back of this pod. But I do think it's just it was a great visual sequence. It must have been very tough to direct because it's a very confined space. And with all the different lighting and stuff like that, it must have been very difficult to direct. And again, this was a spot where the score, I thought, was fantastic. Building up the tension as the interrogation is going on and then just immediately cutting off when the pod shuts off. So that was kind of what the major thing I took from it. Yeah, my takeaway from this is like this is also a lost takeaway because everybody knows Dan Lindelof was the lost, one of the lost guys. And mm-hmm. it reminded me very much of a sequence, I think in season three of the show, in this uh, place that the characters, the others, had this uh, science lab, they had a room called Room 23, where they sort of played a bunch of subliminal messages on the screen, they put a bunch of flashing images on you all quick one after another, sort of, mm-hmm. they sort of used to reprogram people in that, in that scene, sort of like, if people were like, being like defiant or not following the orders of the group, they were put sent to that room to reprogram them to not de- be defiant, stuff like that. I feel gotcha. like that's a similar take here, in my sense. Yeah, no, I, I think... Yeah, because again, you're kind of looking at the inside of what a person really is, is what yeah. this pod is doing. It's yeah. kind of it's messing with their senses a little bit. Yeah. And what we get from the interrogation is looking glass again, knowing, look, being able to look into people. He knows right away this terrorist knows something. He just need gonna need a little bit of convincing. Just a little bit of convincing. He ends up eventually. They end up tricking him, and he leads them to their to his hideout. Well, I don't know if I don't know if they trick him because uh, Abar just beats him up. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that yeah, part. Abar literally just she just like beats the crap out beats of him. Beats the crap out of him, just like and we see blood flowing under the door. Like love that visual yeah, yeah. as well. Fantastic mix of the red just mixing with the water. Utterly unbelievable. One yeah, one thing I want to mention with that too with the show, the colors are great. Oh, they, they pop. They pop like crazy. They it's, pop like crazy. It's like almost like a lot, like Guy Ritchie Aladdin levels of color popping with this with this show. Well, again, that's that's the one thing I'll give Zack Snyder is that from the movie again he made the colors pop and yeah. he made it he made that aesthetic of the movie really work. And again, the graphic novel I have in front of me, the colors pop a lot as yeah. well. And there's definitely tints of depending on the mood of the chapter from the graphic novel. There's definitely different tints that go toward whether it be blue if it's a Doctor Manhattan chapter or something like that. But the colors in this episode really do pop. Yeah, they do pop. So she gets the information. They go on the raid. You get this very striking like sequence of like one of the uh, seven cowboy members like in a in the back of a van with the with the machine gun, basically just like shooting the daylights out of like a bunch of cattle in the field, and it's like char- Like you see blood flying every bullet. It's like a, so gory, so bloody. And, yeah. Like, 
absolutely no regard for for the cattle at no. all. Just blatant no regard. Yeah. They just want to they want to kill the cops who are coming. Um, with Abar leading the charge, also with her is it kind of like I don't know if it's like a masked hero, but someone like her in Red Scare yeah. is another person who's kind of like an elite cop. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know what you would call it. Um, but those two are leading the charge, and safe to say the Seventh Cavalry uh, does not survive. Uh, these two people in the attack. No, they do not. They also do not survive the Night Owl ship. Like no, they don't. <laughs> Uh, what now, Mike? I want to get your opinion on this because this is not the original Night Owl ship from the graphic novel. It's obviously outfitted for police work. Yes. Do you is this a one-off? Do you think? Do you think cop stations across America have these Night Owl ships? Did Night Owl sell the technology uh, in in post 1980s post graphic novel to all cop stations so they can be better prepared for this? Or is it only in Tulsa, Oklahoma after the White Night happened, uh, where the cops were attacked by the 7th Cavalry? I'm very curious about how that Night Owl ship came to be in possession of the cops. Yeah, I'm very curious too because I don't know if the show's going to take us outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma anytime soon because it's hard to tell if it's like a U.S. thing, if it's just a Tulsa thing, if it's a worldwide yeah, thing. We don't know yeah. if cops cover their faces across all of America or, again, if it's only in Oklahoma. Yeah. It's very, very isolated, which is very intriguing if they're going to branch outward. It is very intriguing, but I my guess right now, I guess, is that Judd was a big Night Owl fan and sort of create and sort of like create a uh, replica ship. That's my guess. Well, I mean, if you look in his office, the first time that Abar and, and Judd talk is Abar sipping from a giant owl coffee cup in his yeah. mug. He also has a uh, a copy of Hollis Mason's uh, under. I think it's under the hood. I don't remember what under it's the called. hood. I think is it under the hood. The, so. the book that yeah. Hollis Mason wrote. There's a copy of that in uh, in Judd's office as well. So safe to say, he's a big Night Owl fan. Yeah. People are theorizing. That he may be the Night Owl from the graphic novel. Maybe grown up. Yeah. The age would kind of sort of make sense. I think it'd be off a little bit, but safe to say he is a big uh, big Night Owl fan. He is a big Night Owl fan, and they, they complete the raid. They're later on. We actually get to hear Judd sing. That was actually actually hilarious. That was fantastic. Yeah. Though before we before we go to that, I want to just touch on a nice little homage to the graphic novel. Is they had the seventh cavalry members who were captured, quote unquote, swallow a cyanide pill and kill yeah. themselves. Yeah. Same thing happens in the graphic novel when a person attempts to kill Ozymandias, yeah. and the person in the graphic novel. Society thinks that this terrorist killed themselves, but we find out that Ozymandias actually supplied the cyanide and shoved it in the attempted assassin's mouth. Speak, so, speaking of Ozymandias. Yes. We must get to this sequence with Jeremy Irons' character. Oh. We get, basically, we go to an island, we get a newspaper clipping that says, Zright is dead, mm-hmm. which is the other name for Ozymandias. Well, obviously he's not dead. Yeah, so obviously, yeah. They don't give you Jeremy Irons' character's name, but I have heard interviews where basically they have said, he is who you think he is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're not blatantly saying it, but they're just letting the audience imply this, the Ozymandias sequences were so weird. They were. Like, they were awesome. Also, we we are introduced to Ozymandias literally riding into a castle on a white horse like a triumphant hero. Yeah. Which is how Ozymandias thinks of himself. Yeah. If you read the graphic novel or even Zack Snyder's movie as well, you get the sense that he is literally the smartest man in the world and he knows it. So, again, he, he sees himself as a hero for humankind. So yeah. him riding in on a white horse fits his character to a T. Yeah, and then we get him inside. He claims he's like, he's just like, at one point he's literally just sitting at a table nude, like working on something. And he has his two awkward, like really socially awkward servants there, which 
The theory I've been seeing going around is that he's made these servants himself, and they I, are artificial intelligence. I think they are AI. Yeah. I, I, I'm with that theory as well. They're definitely not, not humans to a real sense. I yeah. think uh, it's going to be explored as to how they were created. I mean, one of them hands him a horse hands him a horseshoe to cut a pizza with. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense. Now, question for you yeah. is he's naked. He's typing up this play, which I'm sure we're going to touch on in a little bit. But they say, oh, sir, you're going to get dressed today. It's a special day. It's your anniversary. Yeah. But they don't say what anniversary it is. Yeah. What do you think the anniversary they're talking about is? I honestly have no idea where they, because there's so many different devices that could go with it, because I heard, I was listening to a podcast earlier, and they were theorizing about this and said, is it the anniversary of the squid attack? And they say, no, the months don't really work out in terms of the timing on the show. I also think they would have touched on that in the more major parts of the episode if yeah. that was the case, right? Yeah. I, you don't know if it's that. You don't know if it's his fake death. Maybe it's his anniversary of. That's what I think yeah. it is. I think it's the day he disappeared off the face of the earth for society's sake. That's what I think the anniversary is. Yeah, so that's anniversaries being alluded to, and then they make they the servant made him a cake. Apparently, the cake is like tastes completely disgusting. So it does. Yeah. But if you look at the cake, just a really really cool thing. Yeah. The decorations on the cake look a lot like a squid. Yeah. There's a high there's a high top on the cake, and then if you look, there's little like legs that come around the circle of the cake. So it's like a squid standing up, and its its tentacles are draping. So yeah. if you look at the cake, just a nice little de- uh, decoration there. Yeah, nice little decoration there for sure. And we get that, and we are set up for also. Did you catch the allusions to Dr. Manhattan in the show? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if the, the play he's making is a clockmaker's son, right? Yeah. That's the name of the play, which is literally Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Because in the graphic novel, Dr. Manhattan's father was a, a watch, uh, watch repairman, watchmaker, and the father of Dr. Manhattan literally throws the clock pieces out the window and says, you're going to study nuclear science because I want you to have a future. Yeah. So immediately drawing back to Dr. Manhattan – and there were other references to Dr. Manhattan as well. There's a live 24-7 scream of him on Mars. Like uh, me- melting like sand walls, basically. Melting sand walls. There's, I loved what they did co- incorporating what uh, Abar was teaching in the class with what they showed on the screen when you got the first visual of the 24-7 stream. Did you catch this? Yes. When it was – so I don't, need, I don't need to explain to everyone, to, to you, but for the audience who didn't catch it, Abar is explaining how you need a foundation to build a cake and to build something proper, yeah. and otherwise it'll crumble. And as the as she's explaining that, you're seeing Doctor Manhattan crumble a wall that he built on Mars with yeah. his mind. Yeah. And I just love that comparison. Yeah. It was awesome, awesome, t- awesome television. Yeah, it was an awesome television. I mean, we we got a very brief tease of the uh, Ozymandias sequence because he was there for what like seven minutes, and he's gone for the rest of the episode. Yeah, he's not there yeah. for very long, but yeah. again, those seven minutes were so tantalizing. Yeah. You're like, what is going to happen next? Just because it was so weird. Yeah, because it, it, it came out of left field. You're not expecting that at all. No, exactly. Like, uh, you knew Jeremy Irons was going to be in the show. He has no idea who the hell he's playing. Well, he's playing Ozymandias, and I think he's going to— If you watched the weeks-to-come preview that HBO put after the show— I think he's going to have a lot of things in store for humankind. I'm not sure that all of them are good. Yeah, probably not good considering the stuff he's up to, especially considering his poor attempts at designing AI. So they're not promising for humankind. No, no. And let's go ahead. I mean, the other real story I saw the rap is the relationship between uh, Abar and uh, Judd because you see at one point they're having dinner after the attack is done. Like he's brought his wife over. Like their whole family's having dinner. He's That's when he's singing the Oklahoma songs and all mm-hmm. that. And. We get to the end of the episode. He gets a phone call that, like, oh, like, the cop that was shot, he's woken up. Then yep. he, you see him go out. He drives to go go meet the cop. He his truck gets run over the runs over like the uh, tire grace to basically sh- like, shoot like uh, shoot his tires up. He gets out of the car. We don't see him again for a little bit. 
uh, Angela gets a phone call saying, like, later on from someone saying, I know who your father is. Like, come here now or else. Mm -hmm. And then we get this cryptic sequence where she's driving off at the end. We see Judd is dead. He is he's literally lynched from a tree. And our friend in the wheelchair, the one who asked Angela early episode if she thought he could lift 200 pounds, yep. is there with the note in his lap. Yeah, the note uh, from the beginning, which read, watch over uh, our son. Watch over this boy. Watch over this boy. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, his name is Will Reeves is the character's yeah. name. Yeah. And then immediately it's it's implied, obviously, Abar doesn't think that Reeves did it. Yeah. Like, just at the cop in her is like, you physically cannot do this. How is this possible? Yeah. And then, so that that's where the episode ends, and I think that's a fascinating. I was shocked yeah. when Judd died because yeah. he was in so much of the of the different promotional material yeah. going around this show, but he's dead. Yeah. Now, I do think he's going to appear in other episodes because Linda Hoff loves to travel. Flashbacks. Uh, flashbacks. That's a lost thing. Yeah, he's a huge <laughs> fan of huge fan of flashbacks. So I'm, he's not going to be off the show forever. He's not going to be in the present timeline, but I can see him in the past. Absolutely, he's still going to be in the show. But I was shocked they killed off this major character. Is this sets things in motion perfectly? A great tease. Uh, for for the end of episode one, and really, I was I was honestly very surprised, but I think this really hints that there's a much bigger scheme going on that Will Reeves knows about. He's gonna try try and talk to Abar about it, and I think the Seventh Cavalry is only a tiny tiny part of the thing that Will Reeves knows. Yes, for sure, that's definitely true. And one thing I wanted to point out, you brought up some interesting take about the whole theory about uh, Dennis Johnson's character being in all the Don Johnson's character being in all the promotional materials. This mm -hmm. is sort of Another thing that actually came out of Lost a little bit because I don't know if you know this story, but back in the original uh, like days of Lost being pitched, the character was actually supposed to play Jack, who was playing Matthew Fox in the show. The original pitch was to give him a big-name actor, like Michael Keaton was originally pitched to be Jack. Mm -hmm. But you would vote in the pilot episode, you wake up with Jack, you see Jack grow through the beginning of the episode. The pitch was that they were going to kill Jack off in the first episode. And have Michael Keaton be in all the promo work, have him be whacked, and then say, "Oh, no one is safe." That yeah. was that's sort of the feeling. They kind of did this here, where like, they put Don Johnson in all the promo materials. He was starting to on all the in the publicity tours, and then bam, dead first episode again. And this drawing back to what we mentioned earlier, a little bit of foreshadowing when Panda said, "You're making a giant mistake," and he said, and Judge said in the cop meeting, going, "Well, it's my funeral." Obviously, he's yeah. going to be having one very soon, and I think next episode we're going to see that funeral for him. Yeah, very well-planted seed there. Fantastic. Again, yeah. the writing in the show was fantastic. This is a great episode of television, yeah. a fantastic pilot episode. Okay, so on the on the scale of A to D, to F, I mean, giving, you're giving it an A. Uh, I think it's not an— B, B plus? B plus. Yeah. I'd say B plus. Um, I think— I don't know if all the acting was utterly fantastic. Like, Panda, I understand what they're going for for him, but, again, the character annoyed me a little bit. I think he's supposed to. But it was it was a B-plus episode. I'm super excited for what's coming next. I think if you start off your pilot with a B-plus, things can definitely go up from there yeah. because we don't know the full conspiracy yet. I, I would have given this higher if we got more Ozymandias yeah. because that, that little time that he was on the screen was when I was like, oh, my God, what's happening here? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. But, again, I think Lindelhoff and everyone who made this episode was smart in limiting that amount of Ozymandias time so people are wondering what he's doing going forward. Yeah, I know a little higher. I gave it an A minus because I was just hooked the entire way through. It was very intriguing, and it, it, it scratched some of the lost itch I've had over the years when, since Lost went off the air. Yeah, the and I, I don't think we know what's going to happen next because literally nobody knows the story. Only Lindell Hoff and the writers do. So we got eight more episodes left to kind of unfurl what this Watchmen series is going to do. And potentially only eight more episodes because Damon Lindelof has said publicly, he said, this was I as a one-season project. So yes. He said, 
we'll see if the response dictates another season. But as of right now, we are only planning nine episodes. Yes, which I think is very, very interesting. And I'm sure HBO will be begging him or anyone who wants to take this project on afterwards if it's as successful as they hope it to be. Yeah. I think it will be very interesting to see where it goes. John, thanks for hopping in here to break down the pilot of Watchmen. So I'm sure you'll be watching going forward. I will be watching. This is the this is now the only show that on TV right now, which I will be tuning in live to watch every single week. Yeah, I will admit I did not get to watch it live yesterday. I was watching Sunday Night Football with the, with the Cowboys crush the Eagles. And I went to it right this was better than Sunday Night Football. Oh, it absolutely was. <laughs> not even close. Absolutely was. Before we let you go, you already know how to follow you on social media. Uh, sure. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at jstanko99. Or I have my own blog, uh, stankosstance.wordpress.com, uh, if you want to try and follow that. Absolutely. Thanks again. And this is all for this week's episode, bonus episode of the Watchmen pro- uh, podcast. If you liked it, please give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. You can always follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Hashtag for this episode, it's got to be Squid Rain. Squid Rain? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hashtag Squid Rain. Hashtag Squid Rain. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher. Simply search for Just and the Suffering on all those major platforms. You'll find the episodes there. Stay tuned later in the week for our sports episode. We will do some New York Knicks talk with Rob Wolkenbrod. We'll do some NFL picks and more. Until then, have a better day than Judd did. <laughs>